welcome to episode two of the podcast, How'd We Get Here? My name is Debbie Simons. I live in Colorado and I'm sharing with my audience my personal take on a number of issues associated with the 2016 election and its aftermath. Today, we're taking a look at Trump's life as an adult before, we're going to say, 2011, 2012, somewhere along in there. Obviously, this is going to be a very bird's eye view, but periodically I'm going to zoom in and look at an incident that I think is illustrative and representative of the whole. So it's going to be a fast trip, and so hang on and let's go. I'm going to start with two quotations. Actually, these are both ideas and information that came into me just in the last couple of days. One of them I'm going to quote directly because it was posted on my Facebook page as a comment to one of my posts. The other one I will paraphrase lightly because it was in an email and I don't have that person's permission to quote him. But I figure anything that's on a publicly posted Facebook page is fair game. So we're going to be looking at Trump's life And of course, trying to answer the question, well, does any of this really matter now that he's in the White House? These two people are trying to tell me that no, what goes on in Trump's life can be totally divorced from what he does when he's behind the desk in the Oval Office. Here's the first one. This is a direct quote from a man I know somewhat well. I know that he's a very successful businessman and entrepreneur. He runs his own business. And this is what he has to say. Trump's personal life is a mess, but that is true for half of my employees. And yet they do a good job for me. Any politician is simply an employee performing a task for us. There are obviously plenty of people I'd prefer, but given our current reality, Trump is our guy. The second lightly paraphrased statement from an email says that You need to learn how to separate a person's personality from his abilities as a leader and that that is a difficult task. It's a difficult thing to learn, but it needs to be done. Now, I can't tell you how much I disagree with both of these statements, even though I know and respect both of the people who said them. The author of the second paraphrase statement, is also a successful entrepreneur. So both of them, you would say, would know what they're talking about. They're businessmen. Trump is a businessman, and they know what they're talking about. But I would respectfully disagree. There is no way that you can put people into compartments like that or put aspects of a person into compartments like that and not have them bleed over into each other, especially when it's a matter of character. So to start out the rebuttal of this and to lead us into an examination of Trump's career, let me read a quotation from an article that appeared in today's Washington Post by a woman named Jennifer Rubin, who has been a mainstay. If you visit my Facebook page, you see Jennifer Rubin all the time. She is a conservative blogger. She runs the Right Turn blog at the Washington Post. And the section I'm reading starts out with a quotation from a recording that was made 
probably surreptitiously, at a meeting in Missouri, I think it was a fundraiser, that Trump held with some Missouri businessmen. And he's explaining an exchange that he had had recently with Prime Minister Trudeau from Canada. And I'll pick it up from there. This is a quotation from our president. Trudeau came to see me. He's a good guy, Justin. He said, no, no, we have no trade deficit with you. We have none. Donald, please, Trump said, mimicking Trudeau according to audio of the private event in Missouri obtained by the Washington Post. Nice guy, good-looking guy, comes in. Donald, we have no trade deficit. He's very proud because everybody else, you know, we're getting killed. So he's proud. I said, wrong, Justin, you do. I didn't even know. I had no idea. I just said, you're wrong. You know why? Because we're so stupid. And I thought they were smart. I said, you're wrong, Justin. He said, nope, we have no trade deficit. I said, well, in that case, I feel differently, I said, but I don't believe it. I sent one of our guys out. His guy, my guy, they went out. I said, check, because I don't believe it. In a tweet on Thursday, Rubin goes on to say, he repeated the falsehood that we have a trade deficit with Canada. In fact, quoting, the office of the United States trade representative says the United States has a trade surplus with Canada. It reports that in 2016, the United States exported $12.5 billion more in goods and services than it imported from Canada, leading to a trade surplus not a deficit. Then Rubin goes on with her commentary. Consider if you are a country in the European Union deciding to go along with his gambit to change the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is, a, is of course, the uh, nuclear deal with Iran, or a foreign intelligence service trying to decide whether the United States can be trusted with highly sensitive material or a Baltic country leader trying to decide whether to cut a deal with Russia or rely on U.S. security promises. What you are hearing and what your domestic critics and doubters are hearing is that the President of the United States will play you for a sucker and then humiliate you by bragging that he has pulled the wool over your eyes. This conduct might be expected of a New York real estate developer who's willing to lie about anything to get his way, or of a mobster who intimidates people into accepting his lies as truth. It is not, however, remotely acceptable for the U.S. president. It demeans his office, blemishes our international reputation, and alienates allies. It puts him on the same level as his idol Vladimir Putin and other autocrats who revel in their dishonesty as an instrument of power. Trump is making us weaker and less trusted around the globe. Republicans who turn a blind eye or even applaud his antics are harming America. They are putting America last. As I record this on Thursday, March 15th, I think everybody who's listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're a little bit interested in politics if you're listening to it, You know that on Tuesday, the Democrat, Connor Lamb, won the special election in Pennsylvania. 
as of this point, he is showing to have won by about 650 votes. The GOP may ask for a recount. They may file suit. But all of that is just a delaying tactic. Pennsylvania has already said that the number of absentee ballots and overseas ballots are not enough, even if all of them went for the Republican, whose name I'm having a hard time remembering, Saccone, I think. They're not enough to make up the difference. And Pennsylvania does not have an automatic recount law. So right now, we've had another red state elect a Democrat. So this goes along with the election of Doug Jones in Alabama, and now we have Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania. So these people who are saying, well, ignore Trump's personality. He gets the job done. Obviously, he's not getting the job done. There are actually people who think that Trump's rallies that he held in Pennsylvania to publicize the Republican, Saccone, may have actually helped defeat him. Not because people voted differently who went to the rallies, but because the rally was so obnoxious, and of course it got a lot of publicity, that it riled up the Democrats across that district, and they turned out in greater numbers to vote for Lamb. So the very prescient article by Eric Erickson, a true Christian conservative, back last May called The Coming GOP Bloodbath is already starting to come true. We had a trickle in Alabama. We have another trickle in Pennsylvania. And most people think that by November, it is going to indeed be a bloodbath. And this is exactly what I said was going to happen if we elected Trump. Now we'll see if I'm actually proven right. A lot can happen between now and November. So I will plead the fifth if pressed. But many of us who refuse to vote for Trump refuse to do so for this very reason. We said he's going to be such a disaster as a president that he is going to pull down the GOP in shambles around him. And make no mistake, as my husband is fond of saying, if the Democrats retake Congress, they will have no mercy. So you might say, well, there was no way to see this coming. But actually, there was. Donald Trump had a very clear record as an adult. And so that's what I want to turn to now. People who say, we couldn't have known, are being somewhat disingenuous. There was plenty of evidence of the kind of person Donald Trump was, and yes, that does matter. As Jonah Goldberg, one of my favorite authors over at National Review, is fond of saying, I'm sure he didn't originate this phrase, character is destiny. Okay. So if somebody said to me, can you sum up Donald Trump's career as an adult, both in his personal and his public life, one word, I would say, yes, the word is cheating. And if you give me two words, then I can expand it to shameless cheating. This was recognized early on 
I'm not in this podcast episode going to go into all of the ins and outs of the primary season, but I do want to quote here from an epic speech that Mitt Romney gave in March of 2016, so almost exactly two years ago. He gave a speech. It was called A Time for Choosing. I think, I was too lazy to look this up. I think that's an echo of a Reagan speech. And he was not running, but he was giving a warning. The Trump train was starting to pick up steam, and he was very concerned, and rightly so. And by the way, I am so looking forward to his being in the Senate, barring some totally unforeseen disaster, he should be elected. He filed the paperwork today. Here's what he had to say two years ago. Here's what I know. Donald Trump is a phony, a fraud. His promises are as worthless as a degree from Trump University. He's playing the members of the American public for suckers. He gets a free ride to the White House and all we get is a lousy hat. His domestic policies would lead to recession. His foreign policies would make America and the world less safe. He has neither the temperament nor the judgment to be president, and his personal qualities would mean that America would cease to be a shining city on a hill. I'm convinced America has greatness ahead, and this is a time for choosing. God bless us to choose a nominee who will make that vision a reality. So, what is Romney talking about? Well, let's look, first of all, very briefly at Trump's personal life as an adult and going into detail about his many, many affairs and public breakups and posturings would take hours. There are whole books written about Trump. I'm going to list a couple in the show notes for this episode. Probably the best one is the one put out by the Washington Post, Trump Revealed, and it goes into exhaustive and exhausting detail about many details of Trump's life. But I said that cheating summed up his life And that certainly sums up his relationships, especially with his wives. So he's had three wives. We now know because of recent revelations that he has cheated on all three wives. And we also know that he loved being prominent on the gossip pages of the New York tabloids. He loved it. He was not ashamed. He wanted the world to know that he was a magnet for beautiful women. He wanted the world to know that Ivana, his first wife, was simply not enough for him, that he was having affairs all over the place. And we also know there are anecdotes about his actually calling publicists and using a false name to promote some story or other about himself. Ironically enough, one of his favorite pseudonyms was the last, I think it was John Barron. I know the last name was Barron, B-A-R-R-O-N. And of course, his youngest child by Melania is named Barron. Of all the people in this story that I feel the sorriest for, I feel worst for poor little Barron Trump. I just, I don't know. I hope he gets to 
get back to a normal life someday. I would also say, this is perhaps in poor taste, but let me just put it this way. A man who has to constantly boast about his sexual adventures may not actually be having very many. And I'll just leave it at that. One way that we know about Trump's attitude towards women, besides all the gossip column chatter, is from his appearances on the utterly nauseating, vile, and vulgar Howard Stern show. Can you tell how I feel about Mr. Stern? He appeared a couple dozen times over the years on that show, and his comments and his interplay with Mr. Stern are so disgusting. I just, I cannot bring myself to post a link. I honestly can't. The most inoffensive in terms of words used thing that he said was that if Ivanka wasn't his daughter, he'd be dating her. And if I'm saying that's the cleanest thing I can come up with, then you can imagine what the rest of it is like. So that's Donald Trump's personal life. And my friend at the beginning of this podcast episode, whose Facebook post I mentioned, said, well, I have employees who have terrible personal lives, but they come to work and they do a good job for me. Well, good for them. That probably will not last. Now Trump's business life. One of the things that's said about Trump that makes me just want to tear my hair out, all of my hair out, is that Trump is a good businessman. He knows how to run a business, and so therefore he will know how to run the country. That, of course, that statement totally ignores the fact that running a country is very different from running a business. But, as has been pointed out many times, Donald Trump's business was not a huge corporation with him as the CEO and many stockholders and board members whom he had to deal with on a regular basis and had to exert his diplomacy and his management skills. That was not the kind of business that Donald Trump had at all. His business is privately owned. It is family owned, and he gets to run it any way he pleases. And this is not a recipe for success as president of the United States, even if his businesses had been successful, but most of them were not. And I said that I would be pulling out some representative examples. So for his business life, I can't think of any better example of his poor business skills than the building and then the bankruptcy of the Taj Mahal Casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Trump already had two casinos in Atlantic City, and he had decided he wanted to build a third. And this one would be the biggest and the best, the most glamorous. It would attract people from all over the world. And his business advisors, and he did have some, were saying, this will not work. There is no way that you can attract enough business to keep the doors open and the business that you do attract is going to be cannibalized from your other casinos, which was perfectly true. And let me just stop here and say casinos. He's running casinos. That is not exactly the cleanest business in the world. In fact, the Taj Mahal was cited 106 
times under Trump's management for money laundering violations. And I would remind you, there's been a lot of controversy about this book and parts of it are almost certainly not true. But in Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, Steve Bannon says to Michael Wolff, for some unknown reason, it's all about money laundering. Well, there are echoes of that in the Taj Mahal, which ended up going bankrupt twice. Trump spent money on that place so recklessly, and the interest on the debt was so high that it was impossible for it to keep open. It was impossible for it to service its debt. And I'm attaching in the show notes a link to a very good article in The Atlantic about the Taj Mahal. I will also mention that the Taj Mahal had the first strip club inside a U.S. casino. A strip club. So just keep that in mind. At one point, Trump's banks put him on an allowance, personal allowance, because he was overspending so wildly. Usually it is said that in total during his business career that Trump went bankrupt four times, but apparently it's actually six times. And at one point, anyway, the only bank that would lend to him was Deutsche Bank, which has had a history of dealings with Russians. I don't know how much, if any, I'm going to get into this whole Russia thingamabob, but at some point, Trump was in need of money and other U.S. banks were refusing to lend to him. That's apparently not true now, however. He is, however, now president. All right, so that's the type of thing that he's doing as a businessman. Uh, The string of his failures is epic. Now, third and most important and relevant for our purposes here, Donald Trump's political life. I have read somewhere that he switched parties seven or eight times. He has switched back and forth between being a Democrat and being a Republican, and he has also declared himself an independent At one point in 2000, he ran officially as a candidate in the Reform Party. He did not go all the way to the election. He withdrew. But he was doing pretty well in polling as a Reform Party candidate. So he's waffled back and forth. He's taken differing views on all sorts of hot-button issues such as abortion. And it's hard to know what he really believes. Interestingly, the one principle he's always stuck to is that America needs to be more protectionist, that America needs tariffs to protect its business. And of course, last week, he announced his 25% tariff on steel and 10% on aluminum, although he has now somewhat walked those back. Who knows what's finally going to happen with those? I don't think that it's eight-dimensional underwater chess, however. So now we're up to around 2010. Donald Trump is in his early 60s, and he really wants to make a serious run for the presidency. 
he says to a friend, and I've been unable to go back and find this quotation, but I know I read it somewhere, that uh, he just wanted to get it out of his system. He wants to run for one of the two main parties. And I think it's fair to say that he had absolutely no chance of being the Democratic nominee. So he does something very interesting in early 2011. He starts promoting the birther conspiracy about Barack Obama, the birther conspiracy theory about Barack Obama. Now, I think everybody listening to this, again, knows this, but just to be sure that I'm being clear, the birther idea was that Barack Obama, hated vociferously by many people on the right, was not a legitimate U.S. president because he had not been born in the United States, that he had been born in Kenya. That was the usual story. Sometimes the version was that he had been born in Indonesia under, for some reason, the name Barry Sotero. But the typical story was that he had been born in Kenya, that his mother, uh, Stanley Ann, had been visiting his father, who was Kenyan, and that she was heavily pregnant. She let things go too long. The, the, the airlines would not allow her to fly on that long flight when she was that far along in her pregnancy. So that she gave birth to Barack Obama in Kenya, and then as soon as she could, got on a plane, flew back to Hawaii, and registered his birth there. And the reason why this mattered so much was that the Constitution says that no one shall be considered qualified to hold the office of the president without being a native-born citizen. So if he had been born in Kenya, how could he possibly be a native-born citizen of the U.S.? Well, there were a couple of problems with that. Number one, it was demonstrably untrue. There was documentation showing that Barack Obama had been born in Hawaii. Even Dinesh D'Souza, in his rather laughable film, The Roots of Obama's Rage, admits this. But even so, even if it had been true, it would not have mattered because Barack Obama's mother was an American citizen. And through many court cases down through the years, it has been established that a native-born American citizen, one way that you can fit that description is that at least one of your parents at the time of your birth is an American citizen. And as far as I know, there's never been any doubt that Barack Obama's mother was a U.S. citizen when she gave birth to him. The Obama White House did not pick up that idea. It always sounds a little weak when you say, well, that's not true. But even if it is true, that just weakens your argument. So Obama produced his short-form birth certificate, the announcement in the paper, but there were many people, and among them now, in early 2011, Donald Trump saying, oh, we think there's something wrong with this. We think that he really wasn't born in Hawaii after all. And suddenly Donald Trump was, pardon me, trumpeting this idea 
I remember in particular seeing a clip of his being on The View. So there's Donald Trump with four beautiful women all hanging on his every word. And as I said last time in our first episode, at this point I wasn't paying really any attention to speak of at all to politics, but even I found this all very puzzling. I would hear little snippets on the radio, and I thought, well, why is Donald Trump smearing Barack Obama? I thought Donald Trump was a liberal Democrat. In retrospect, of course, I think it's pretty clear what he was doing. He was positioning himself for a pivot to the right. This was something very simple and obvious that he could start pushing to signal that he was no longer a darling of the left, that he had doubts about Barack Obama. I think it's fair to say that all of this hoo-ha that Hillary Clinton spouted during the 2016 campaign about how grieved Barack Obama was about the whole birther conspiracy thing and especially about Donald Trump's participation in it was just that, a bunch of hoo-ha. I'm sure that Obama eventually found that it was pretty irritating to have to keep saying the same thing over and over again. But I also think that he was a sharp enough political figure, political actor, that he knew that what he'd really been handed was a gift. He knew that this was not true. He knew that at any time he could blow it up. And he had basically then been just handed a a hand grenade with the pin still in it. All he had to do is pull the pin out and throw it back at the right-wing people who were saying he was not a legitimate president. So something very interesting happens in April of 2011. And I'm taking some time to tell about this because... I think it does illustrate a number of things about Trump. So right before the White House Correspondents' Dinner, Obama pulled that piece of political theater off, and he sent somebody from the Secretary of State all the way to Hawaii to inspect the long-form birth certificate. You can be sure that our tax dollars paid for that flight and that it almost certainly was first class. So the idea was that the state of Hawaii did not release copies of the long-form birth certificate. You could come and inspect it in the book. So the Obama official and the Grand Wizard of the Records or something in Hawaii inspected it and approved it and said, yes, it confirmed that Obama had indeed been born in Hawaii. All right. Not too long after this hoop-de-doo was the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which Trump has boycotted last year. I expect him to boycott it again this year because it's just not his kind of scene, although he did attend the Gridiron Dinner this year, which was kind of interesting. But Trump already had tickets, and he had a table right in the front And I think the idea was that he was planning to sit there and grin at Obama, who was giving a roast speech there, and just in general be sort of an obnoxious presence at the party. But now the tables had been turned. And I'm going to include in the show notes just one short clip of Barack Obama making 
just merciless fun of Donald Trump. And there is somewhat of a view that you can see of Trump's face, and it's getting redder and redder. And indeed, the whole evening was like this. As soon as the dinner was over and the speeches began, it was flay Donald Trump alive time. I think, and I'm not alone in thinking this, that Barack Obama may have regretted that evening. At the time, it was very satisfying to have that whole room laughing until they cried at his jokes at Donald Trump's expense. But there are people who seriously think that this is what set the seal on Donald Trump's determination to run as a serious candidate. His poll numbers among Republicans, this would have been some kind of generic poll where people were being asked, well, if, if you had to vote in a primary today, who would you vote for? For a while there, before the correspondence dinner, Trump's poll numbers had been higher than Mitt Romney's. And I wonder if he might have gone ahead and tried to mount a run in 2012 if it hadn't been for this embarrassing spectacle. As it was, he kind of disappeared from political life for a while. And of course, Mitt Romney gained the nomination and went on to lose in rather spectacular fashion to the incumbent Barack Obama. So that's where I'm going to leave this story now. And I'm going to pick up next week with Trump's announcement of his candidacy for the Republican nomination at Trump Tower in June of 2015, and to look then in some detail at what happened in the primary season, what people said about him when he seemed to be a joke versus what people said about him, the same people, when it became obvious that he was a serious candidate. And until then, this is Debbie Simons signing off as the Intentional Conservative.